Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Over 25 years ago, on September 29, 1998, we watched a brainy girl with curly hair drop everything to follow a guy she only kind of knew all the way to college. And so began Felicity. My name is Juliette Littman, and I'm a Felicity superfan. Join me, Amanda Foreman, who you may know better as Megan, the roommate, and Greg Grunberg, who you may also know as Sean Blunberg, as the three of us revisit our favorite moments from the show and talk to the people who helped shape it. Listen to Dear Felicity, presented by Walmart on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Viore. Give the active people in your life something they'll truly appreciate. Performance apparel from Viore. Whether they're into running, surfing, hiking, or even just casual walks around the block, there's something for everyone. And if you're not sure what to gift them, you can't go wrong with something from Viore's Dream Knit Collection. It's the perfect gift and so comfortable. Get 20% off your first purchase today at Viore. V-U-O-R-I dot com slash Spotify. Hello, welcome to The Rest is History and our ongoing World Cup-themed epic. And Dominic, today we are arriving in one of the great powerhouses of the World Cup, Mexico, and Mexico City's Estadio Azteca, one of only two stadiums to have hosted the World Cup final twice. Golly, Tom, that's a good footballing fact from you. Did you know that? You don't normally come out with these stadium facts on this podcast. <laughs> stadium facts, I've got it. And the other yes. one is uh, Rio de Janeiro's Maracanã. Maracanã, I yeah. that right. <laughs> Maracanã. Yeah. Maracanã. I saw the, uh, the squiggle in the wrong place. <laughs> I briefly thought it was the Macarena, actually. The Macarena. I wish you said the Macarena. <laughs> Would have been even better. Anyway, so... Um, what have you got for us that is Mexican-themed? What aspect so, of Mexican history? Uh, we're in the autumn. It's very unusual to have an autumn World Cup. And in the autumn, um, in non-Mexican countries, you think of Mexico in the autumn, and I think you think of one thing above all, which is the Day of the Dead. Do you think of the Day of the Dead, Tom? Yes, I do. Well, those people who haven't been to Mexico and don't know anything about the Day of the Dead may well remember the scene at the beginning of the James Bond film Spectre. Have you seen this from 2015, Tom, where... Um, the opening sequence. Uh, oh, vaguely, yes, vaguely. And he jumps around, doesn't he? There's a big square and he jumps off buildings and things. Right. Well, James Bond always jumps As around, expect, I think it's fair yes. to say. Yeah. So um, for those people who don't know, um, uh, there's a long tracking shot through the procession, great parades and floats, people dressed as all kinds of, of sort of skeletons and demons and things. Um, James Bond, it turns out, is wearing this fantastic sort of skeleton costume with a top hat and a suit. Um, extraordinary costume and it's this incredibly sort of sumptuous exotic scene clearly designed to be a sort of quintessentially mexican moment it's very it's very typical of you dominic though that you would go for james bond when there's a there's a much more obvious mainstream film recent film that's uh, featured around the day of the dead which is the pixar film coco i've never seen it tom i've never seen it okay so i i really hate pixar films 
um, they kind of came in when my my children were young, and so I just had to watch them over and over again. And so I have a, a deep, deep hate f- hatred for them. Crikey, you don't often hear that. And, and, and I kind of boycott them as a matter of principle. And then I was on. You, you, we've done it Saturday Review. It's a kind of Radio Four yeah. Review program. Uh, and I saw that I had to do this Pixar film, Coco, and it was about the Day of the Dead. And I sat down, absolutely determined to hate and despise it. By the end, I was in floods. It's, oh. it's an absolutely brilliant and brilliantly manipulative film. That's the genius of Pixar. It is. I hated it. I was, but I was, and that that kind of plunges into the heart of the myth, and it's about like, people actually dying, coming back from the dead, all that kind well, of stuff. So. So I assume what the Pixar film is playing on is exactly the same thing that the Bond film Spectre is playing on, which is this idea of a sort of morbidity and an exoticism wrapped into one. So that idea of the Day of the Dead as something absolutely emblematically Mexican and is expressing something in the Mexican soul. Whenever you read any description of it, it's right there. So uh, I Google Day of the Dead. One of the first things that comes up is TripAdvisor. TripAdvisor says it's a 4,000-year-old tradition celebrated in Mexico on the 1st and 2nd of November every year. Um, I read The Guardian. The Guardian has a feature. I know a newspaper very close to your heart, Tom. Must be true, yeah. Uh, The Guardian says the Day of the Dead, explicitly says the Day of the Dead dates back to the Aztec period. Okay, but might there not be an alternative perspective that it's a Christian festival? Tom, do not anticipate the theme of this (laughs) podcast. Sorry. One thinks of St. Adilo of Cluny. So... That thing that we that I talked about at the beginning, the James Bond scene, the, the parade in Mexico City, the floats, the costumes. The great problem with all this is that there is no such, or certainly when the film was made, there was no such parade. It was a complete, I mean, this was the classic invented tradition, invented by the filmmakers. So there's no Day of the Dead parade. And everything about the Day of the Dead in, the, in our sort of non-Mexican imagination, almost everything about it is wrong. So even the name of it, so in, in, it's called Dia de Muertos, but grammatically it should be Dia de los Muertos. So it's kind of occupies a gray area there. The date is is contested. So usually it's celebrated on the 1st and 2nd of November, but it could be a day or two earlier. And the reason it could be, we'll get into, it's sort of rooted in history. Now the tradition, so when you read anything about it, they will tell you that this is a holiday to honor the dead that the Mexicans do. It, it, it expresses something very deep about their obsession with death. And this goes back to the Aztecs sacrificing people and all this. That's the, the inchoate idea. Yeah. This is the inchoate idea, exactly. That they will honor them. They will build altars. You'll build an altar in your home called an ofrenda um, with the favorite foods and the drinks of your, your dead loved ones. You will make a huge expedition to the graveyard with these things as gifts. Uh, you will give gifts to your friends. You'll give them things called calaveras, which are candy sugar skulls. You will share a special bread called the pan de muerto with your friends and family. And you will write sort of mock epitaphs for, for, for people who are alive. So you'll write these sort of jokey verses and they're called calaveras literarias. So literary calaveras. So the other aspect of this is flowers. So you see the flowers everywhere, um, orange marigolds, which are meant to be the sort of symbol of death. They're called in, in Mexico, sempasuchil, uh, which comes from the Nahuatl word, which means 20 flowers, and it's called the flower of the dead. So again, that sort of link back to the, the Aztec past. And in fact, those marigolds, 
Are you familiar with the Florentine Codex of the 16th century? Yes, we, we talked about it with uh, Camilla Camilla Townsend. Townsend. Exactly. So this great yeah. source, this pioneering work of ethnography by a Franciscan friar in the, in the mid-16th century, so after the Spanish conquest, and he's talking about life among the, the Mexica, the, the Aztecs, as we would call them. And he says they love these flowers, and they use these flowers in their religious rituals. They're yellow, they, they're beautiful, they smell very bright, you know, all this. Because he's writing about this for a European audience. There's a sort you can sort of see why people would think some of this is is rooted in history, and um, and just to go into a couple of the details for people who are not familiar. So our American listeners, I would imagine, will be much more familiar with this all this than our British ones or our Australian ones, because of course in Britain, Mexican culture and Mexican food and all that sort of thing doesn't have anything like this. Sort but of also, traction. Dominic, also, I mean, I, not to preempt, but also we're not a Catholic country, exactly. So I'm sure yeah. we'll come to the Catholic dimension of this. Fairly soon. So let's just um, dig into a, a couple of particular elements to this that our American, and indeed if we have any Mexican listeners, that they will immediately recognize. So I mentioned bread. So a sweet, it's a kind of sweet bread, pan de muerto, a kind of pan dulce. And it's shaped like a bun and it's decorated with kind of almost like bones, you know, sort of pastry bones. Um, there's a sort of rounded top of the bread and people, some people say it's like a grave. Um, all of this kind of stuff. Sometimes the people say the bones are meant to be the bones of the dead person. So it's essentially, I mean, the um, in the English-speaking world's equivalent is Halloween. Well, we will come to this. How, what's it got to do with Halloween? Is there some kind of link? I think you know more, much more about Halloween than I do. So you will be able to. I'm, I'm going to ask you about Halloween. So you've got the bread. I mean, we don't have a Halloween bread, do we, in the British Isles? No. Um, and indeed. There is this frequently repeated story. Again, if you Google it, if you look at any kind of, I'm, I'm talking about history websites, not just sort of generic travel websites. They will say, well, this dates back to the Aztec tradition of human sacrifice. Um, so this is from one website. It says, a maiden was offered to the gods. They placed a still beating heart in a pot with amaranth, and they had to bite it as a symbol of gratitude. And the story goes, and you can sort of see the implausibility of this, that the conquistadors, in their enlightened, kindly ways, um, disgusted with the cannibalism and the sacrificial nature of Aztec religion, they compelled the Mexicans to replace the heart that they would be biting with a bun. And that's the origins of the, of the bun. Tom, I can see you scoffing. Yeah. You clearly uh, well, you're a revisionist. They, I'm, I'm, and in, in, in bread history terms, you're, you're <laughs> clearly a... Uh, well, no, it's just that... It is, it is a very popular theme that, uh, particularly on the internet, yeah. that uh, Christian festivals have their origins in pagan antecedents. And we talked about that with Ronald Hutton, didn't we? Yeah. We did it in, in our episode on Christmas. The idea that basically Christian festivals are attempts to kind of dress up in Christian dressing ancient pagan rituals. Yes. This yes. is a very popular theme. And almost invariably rubbish. Well, the, Me the Mexican government, the official Mexican government website, says that uh, this is – disagrees with you. The official mm -hmm. government Mexican website says this is definitely um, is related to um, pre-conquest indigenous traditions. Uh, the National Institute of Indigenous People in Mexico also says, oh, no, this is absolutely indigenous tradition. Um, it's pre-Hispanic, all this kind of thing. So you've got the bread. And then the other element is the is the sugar skulls, the calaveras. So I, I googled them for their for their origins. 
one of the first things that came up was the website of top historian Martha Stewart, the mm-hmm. uh, American cook. Yes. And her website says... Cook and jailbird, right? <laughs> correct. And her website says, unequivocally, the sugar skull tradition can be traced back over 3,000 years ago. So people were Aztecs 3,000 years ago. I mean, the Aztecs didn't actually exist 3,000 years ago, but there you go, that they were making sugar skulls and exchanging them um, on the Day of the Dead. And in fact, the more you Google, the more different. So some people say, well, actually, you know what? It's not actually Aztec. It's a, it's a Mayan tradition or Toltec. You know, the, the, yeah. the origins go or further. And, right, yeah. exactly, further and further. But the point, the, the sort of, the underlying point of all this is that this is a dark and a, this is ultimately what we have now in Coco, Inspector, in Mexican households is a, is a domesticated, sanitized 21st century version of a dark and ancient ritual that is bound up with human sacrifice and that expresses something about the Mexican soul, a kind of intense morbidity. Yeah, an yeah. intense morbidity. And, and actually, it also expresses something about Mexican political and cultural identity that the post-conquest Catholicism and Europeanization is merely a veneer. And when you scratch that away, you get to the ancient inheritance beneath. Yeah, so it's like the, the Virgin of Guadalupe being a actually a kind of ancient goddess or whatever. Exactly so. Yeah. So that's what, 1530s, I think? The, yeah. uh, the, exactly. And of course, Tom, you know what I'm going to say. This, I, I, I'm with you. I, I think all this is complete and utter nonsense. Let's take those two foodstuffs. The, 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 the bread and the, the skulls. Bread and the, the skulls. So start with the skulls. The great issue with this is that p- people weren't making sweets out of sugar before the Spanish conquest. So it's complete nonsense. Most actual food historians think that these sugar skulls originate in the 18th century when Mexico was New Spain. The, the Spanish were whizzes, uh, molding things out of bread and marzipan. They loved doing it. They loved they making loved it. They loved they doing did. that. Did well, they? I, why wouldn't you? Do you <laughs> yeah. like, I would, I mean, I, I, I've, Tom, I've had breakfast at your house, and I wouldn't describe you as a – you're not one of life's – you're not Rick Stein. Is that fair to say? Uh, I think that would be fair to say. But then again, I've never actually tried to make a, a skull out of marzipan. Maybe I'd be brilliant at it. Yeah. Who you knows? know, there's always been a bit of a sort of – and all the time I've known you, there's a kind of quest – there's a, a sense a of yearning. a yeah, Yes, a, re- a, a yearning to express yeah. my sense of the skull beneath the skin through the medium of cookery. This is your equivalent of Alexander the Great's pothos. It is. It's his yearning, his dream of something it beyond. It is. That you're, you as a patissier. <laughs> uh, yes. It's a dream that one day I will follow, but not, but not yet. I think my stiff, uptight Anglo-Saxon nature has prevented right. me from, from following that dream. Okay. What about baking? Like baking more generally, bread. Let's move on to the bread. Okay. Do you, like, do you, do you ever make bread? No. That's one thing I, I, that's one thing I would never do. Okay, well, very against that as a matter of principle. Just close your ears to the next section because it'll be of no interest to you. No, um, I'm, inter- I'm interested in what other people do, I d- but I don't want to do it. So all that stuff under the lockdown, people baking bread, yeah. I despise that. Oh, that's hard. That's to say, do not break bread. No. Okay. Right. Well, fine. No, she she did the garden. Okay. What do you do? Uh, I was. I think I was translating Suetonius. <laughs> well, that, that says it all, doesn't it? I mean, that's <laughs> that's my idea of fun. So, so. Let's talk about bread. So the pan de muerto, very important part of the Mexican Day of the Dead tradition. The ingredients of that bread are wheat, cane sugar, cow's milk, butter, eggs, and a sort of orange zest or something. 
And these things, basically, none of these things were present in... Oh, you and your bracing scepticism. So, I have a quote here from Elsa Malbido from the Institute of Anthropology in Mexico City. And she said, and you, I, I, I read this, Tom, and thought of you. She said, if we think the Day of the Dead is a tradition of pre-Hispanic origin, that means we do not understand anything, since it is deeply Roman. <laughs> Woo! You, must, you <laughs> must be very excited by that. Go Latin America. So what's the sto- what's the real story um, behind it? So as you will know, Tom, I imagine in medieval Europe, there was a tradition of eating special bread anyway on All Saints Day. They would call it panda animas, bread of souls, and they would sometimes make it in the shape of people. And All Saints Day is the 1st of November. Right. So you've basically got All Hallows Eve, is that right? That's yeah, that, so that's, that's Halloween. Hall- that's Halloween. Um, All Saints Day. Or All Hallows, yeah. And then All Souls. And All Souls Day was popularized by uh, Saint Adilo of Cluny right. in the 10th century. And it's the idea that um, it's obviously the saints are in heaven, but everyone else is in purgatory. Yeah. So it's a way of, of focusing on them and their, their purgative sufferings. Well, I know you like purgative suffering. Love it. And you would therefore be at one with the great um, American historian Stanley Brands, who is the world expert, Tom, on the Day of the Dead, and his excellent book, which I commend to the listeners, Skulls to the Living, Bread to the Dead. Excellent title. That's a fabulous title. Yeah. It's a very good title. So he's gone through all this, and he basically says, in um, Iberia, in Spain, um, in the 1500s, All Souls Day was a massive, massive deal. So there would be a sort of catafalque in a church. There would be all sorts of candles there would be, and there would be shed loads of bread. People would bring in all this bread. With with orange zest? With all this. Well, of course, once you've got the Colombian exchange, you are going to have a lot more spiced, scented stuff. And, of course, sugar. Stuff. Yeah, that's, stuff. That's, that's the technical, technical well, term. You know, when you work in the kitchen, Tom, as I often am, under enormous yes. pressure, you don't have time to get into get the Get me that of, stuff. The techno bubble. <laughs> yeah. Get me a handful of stuff. So he's gone through all the sort of records of guilds and things in places like Barcelona, Madrid, places that have all these records. And he has found, for example, the first mention that he can find of, of um, the Day of the Dead, Dia da Dels Mortes, is in Catalan, comes from 1671. And it's talking about people exchanging bread, people exchanging all this sort of stuff. So in other words, that's not happening in Mexico. That's happening in Spain. And you would think, okay, well, they must have obviously shipped that tradition over to Mexico. And then it went through various sort of evolutions and all this. But no, actually. Wow, it's more complicated than that. It is much more complicated and much more surprising. So I think we should take a quick break. And then when we come back, Tom, we will be in the world of the 20th century, the Mexican Revolution, Graham Greene and... An attempt to replace, shockingly, Father Christmas. Brilliant. Don't go away. Over 25 years ago, on September 29th, 1998, we watched a brainy girl with curly hair drop everything to follow a guy she only kind of knew all the way to college. And so began Felicity. My name is Juliette Littman, and I'm a Felicity superfan. Join me, Amanda Foreman, who you may know better as Megan, the roommate, and Greg Grunberg, who you may also know as Sean Blunberg, as the three of us revisit our favorite moments from the show and talk to the people who helped shape it. Listen to Dear Felicity, presented by Walmart on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Bienvenido. We are talking the Day of the Dead and Dominic... In the yeah. first part, you set up this image of the Day of the Dead as a, an ancient pre-Columban um, tradition going back 2,000 years, 3,000 years, 6,000 yeah. years, 10,000 years, whatever. But I had always thought that it was um, essentially kind of introduced by um, the Catholics, uh, by the Spanish, um, yeah. when they arrived in Mexico. The bombshell that you let off just before the the break was the possibility it may be even more recent than that. Yeah, so it's a slightly misleading bombshell if bombshells can be misleading, because <laughs> I think because um, I think what is certainly true is that when Mexico becomes, as it were, Christianized in the 16th century, obviously the Spanish import all their traditions, their calendar, and so on. And there is a kind of it, th- those traditions do get kind of died inevitably by the indigenous traditions as well they absolutely they absolutely do and, and that's actually the you know you're talking about the sort of inquiet sort of sense that you have if you're an outsider of mexico and its cultural identity and its traditions and that's exactly how most of us think of it isn't it it's this mm-hmm. sort of syncretic fusion of of sort of pre-columbian survivals and then this sort of this sort of veneer of of spanish i wouldn't say it's a veneer but i would say it's it's a deeply catholic country now yeah but that it is it's dyed it's tinged with inevitably with the uh you know the culture of the land in which it's set let's just go into that a little bit so the day of the dead the, the all souls day the sort of those traditions that in europe are sort of split over three days depending where you are i guess aren't they because mm-hmm. we we they're sort of all hallows eve all Souls Day, All Saints Day, I can't remember the correct order, you'll know. All Saints first. Yeah. And then All Souls. So those traditions are clearly, imp- they go over to Mexico, but there's absolutely no sense that they're more meaningful in Mexico than anywhere else. I mean, nobody sort of says the Mexicans go crazy for this. They can't get enough of it. They put their own spin on it. In terms of mentions of this as the Day of the Dead, the first you get are sort of in 19th century newspapers. So 19th century they mention that people go in processions to graves. They mention that they have drunken parties. But that's what people are doing in Europe. But, but this is kind of, so this is the Mexican equivalent of the, um, you know, it's often said that all traditions in Britain are Victorian. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it's not true, but but there's a kind of enough truth there that it's quite a kind of funny observation. Yeah. But basically, something as fundamental to Mexican identity as the Day of the Dead is its roots are in the 19th century. Is that what you're saying? But they're not, no. Oh. But in the 19th century, people just treat this as another, it's just another Catholic ritual. It's just one of many moments in the Catholic calendar. There's nothing remarkable about it. When it's mentioned, so historians look at it, they look for mentions in newspapers and so on. They say, oh, yes, this is the Day of the Dead, and people have gone and had a little ceremony. But there's no sense that this is uniquely Mexican, that it is you know, expressive of something in the national character any more than Easter, Christmas, you know, any other sort of festival. Where the turning point comes, Tom, 
is in the Mexican Revolution of the 1910s. So the Mexican Revolution is a subject I would love to do on The Rest is History. It is incredibly complicated. Are there lots of acronyms? No, not terribly. There's a lot of characters. In which case, I'm willing to do it. Everybody dies. Pancho Villa is in it. There's, you know, Zapata, great yeah. characters. The Americans pile in. There's lots moustaches. of... Moustaches. There's lots of moustaches. If you like a moustache, if you like a sombrero and a machine gun in combination... Yeah, I do. Then this so is the revolution for, for it. you. Let's go for it. But what you have with the revolution of the 1910s, um, like with so much sort of Latin American politics in this period, you have an intense anti-clericalism. Um, and you have the development afterwards uh, by the sort of post-revolutionary regime. So you have a succession of, basically, you have a succession of generals from the northern province of Sonora taking power in Mexico. And they're often very, very aggressively secular because they want to, you know, they see that as modernity. And, and they want to take possession of the church's lands, I guess. They do, all of that. And what yeah. they want to also cultivate, they, they start to cultivate a new culture a new idea in Mexico that's based on sort of indigenous yeah. pride. So not Hispanic, not European. And they reject the sort of Europeanization. They see that actually as 19th century, as too conservative, all this sort of thing. What's what's the famous the famous painter um, married to the other famous painter? Frida Kahlo. No, the other one, the man. Diego Rivera. So when I was in Mexico, there was this amazing fresco done by Diego Rivera. Yeah. And it showed uh, Cortez as a grotesque syphilitic, kind of yes. green with knobbly knees, which apparently is a sign of someone with syphilis. And I think, is that painted in the palace? I can't remember where it is. It's a very kind of prominent position. So yeah. presumably yeah. that would be an expression of this idea that the Hispanic culture is a kind of syphilis infecting the, the healthy body of pre-Columban culture. Exactly right. Exactly, Tom. So Diego Rivera, Frida Kahlo, that... When people think about from outside Mexico, think of Mexican art. They think of that art created between the 1920s and 1940s or so. The sort of fantastic murals showing indigenous scenes, the bright colors, that sort of overt rejection of European influence and the sort of celebration of the indigenous. And the European is, is presumably, it's not just the church, it's also the upper classes. Exactly right. Exactly. So what well, you have two, two huge figures in this. So the first one is, um, uh, a revolutionary general who becomes president at the end of in the second half of the 1920s. And that is a guy called Plutarco Elias Calles. Plutarco. Plutarco. Oh, what a great it. name that is. Yeah. So he, interestingly, he, his anti-Catholicism is partly fueled by his own background because he's illegitimate and he feels that, you know, the church scorned him their hierarchy kind of looked down on him and that sort of drives it. He is the founder of what's called the Institutional Revolutionary Party that held power for 71 years in Mexico. You know, they had elections, but they just won them all. Yeah, so it's like Japan. Um, exactly. Or indeed Britain. And, and he... <laughs> <laughs> yes. Maybe until... Yeah. Maybe that's going to end fairly soon. <laughs> well, the next election is the yeah. test, right? Yeah. <laughs> So, uh, Kayes really pushes this anti-clerical campaign. He strips the church of its power over education. He bars priests from being involved in politics. And this is what one of the things that really launches this war called the Cristero War. So the Christians in the sort of the rural heartlands of Mexico, they had a slogan, Viva Cristo Rey, long live Christ the King. And they basically launch an uprising against Kayes' government. This is the the context for Graham Greene's novel, The Power and the Glory. You must have read that, Tom. No, I haven't. Oh, my. Oh, of course you don't have. You've got a blind spot with Graham Greene. 
I've, I read um, Brighton Rock. Right. Thought it, thought it poor. <laughs> thought it poor. <laughs> Never bothered. Shocking. I know. Because Tony, Tony, our, our yeah. head of the gold hanger, he loves... He loves. He's um, always on us about. He's always so. on. Say, he's always say. <laughs> I think the first time I met him, he said, "You must do an episode on Graham Green." I played a dead bat to that. <laughs> you didn't say. I thought it bore. <laughs> no, I, well, no, because I was far too respectful at that point. Yeah, you really um, wanted to get the podcasting gig. Presumably, I did. I did. I said yes. Of course, we must. <laughs> I love Brighton Rock. Absolutely, love it. <laughs> brilliant. <laughs> Anyway, sorry. We, anyway, we, The Power of the Glory is a brilliant book about this priest kind of trudging across Mexico in the context of this war in which basically if he's caught, he'll be killed. And 100,000 people are killed in this war. This is not some piff. This isn't the Falklands. You know, this is a, this is a massive well, deal. My knowledge of 20th century Mexican history isn't great. Right. But the sense I do have is that the wars were not piffling. No, not at all. And it has a massive effect on the church. So... Uh, in the 1920s, there had been about 5,000 priests in Mexico. By 1934, there are only 334 serving 15 million people. By 1935, 17 of the states of Mexico have no priest in them at Blimey, all. I had no idea. So that sort of, you know, you think of the anti-clericalism of the Spanish Civil War. This is that, but turned So how many are there the- now? More, many. They've come back. I think they've come back. Yes, exactly. A bit like the beavers in Canada. Right. So the beavers in Canada. Verge of extinction, but now coming back. The theme of another of our Rest is History um, World Cup episodes. So um, so Mexican Catholics and beavers, very kind of. um, (laughs) Because presumably the people do stay Catholic. Yes, they do. But to quote the American historian Donald Mabry, he says, by 1940, the church in Mexico had no corporate existence, no real estate, no schools, no monasteries, no convents, no foreign priests, no right to defend itself publicly or in the courts. Its clergy were forbidden to wear clerical garb, to vote, to celebrate public ceremonies or to engage in politics. I mean, that's extraordinary, isn't it? That makes yes. sort of, that makes Thomas Cromwell look positively kindly. Yeah, it does. So what they replace that with is this cult of the indigenous. And that's where you get Diego Rivera, Frida Kahlo, and all this kind of stuff. And the most famous example of that is their attempt to get rid of, well, I said Father Christmas before the break, but they would have said Santa Claus because they see Santa Claus. It's Yankee, Yankee imperialism. And do you know who they try to replace him with, Tom? Um, Chippy Totek. Not far off. <laughs> Not the flayed one, the no. Lord of the Flayed. <laughs> no. Who was in the World Cup of Gods, wasn't he? Crashed out in the first round. <laughs> he but, did. Well, because, because he, he goes around wearing... The skins of people he's flayed to death. So they try to replace him with perhaps an <laughs> equally Christmas. Have that come down the chimney. <laughs> an equally, <laughs> an equally implausible purveyor of gifts to small children. Quetzalcoatl, the feathered serpent. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, who was Cortez is traditionally said to have been mistaken for, yeah, but wasn't. But, but wasn't exactly. So by this point, Caius had given way to his successor, who was a guy called. Um, Lazaro Cardenas. And Cardenas, his administration was very keen on the idea. They said, basically, if we get rid of Santa Claus, we don't like Coca-Cola, we don't like, you know, American influence. If we get rid of Santa Claus and we place him with Quetzalcoatl, then that would teach children about Mexican history and, and return us to our pre-colonial traditions. So unbelievably, in December 1930, in the national, you mentioned Mexican stadiums, in the national stadium in Mexico City. So was that, was that at the Estadio Azteca that we mentioned at the start of the show? 
No, sadly, Tom, it would it would be a beautiful link if it had been at the Azteca Stadium, <laughs> but it wasn't because that wasn't built until the 1960s. So it was a national oh. stadium, it was called, in Mexico City. So they build a pyramid inside the um, instead of the national stadium, and then they force they they basically encourage all the children of the city to assemble in the stadium. And at the top of the pyramid, a man dressed as the feathered serpent. <laughs> Brilliant. distributes presents to them so it would be like building kind of a replica of stonehenge in wembley in wembley and a man and a druid yeah or somebody yes. dressed as woden you know <laughs> yeah amazingly this didn't take off people were too loyal to santa claus so so it didn't work but the weird thing is actually so this then led me down are you going to put inverted commas around the words research i think it's fair to say because i'm not an expert <laughs> people may have worked out already i'm not a great expert in mexican history but it led me down something of a rabbit hole because there is a strange subset of history about people who think that quetzalcoatl was somebody else yes. so for example the mormons believe that he was jesus yes so the third Mormon president, John Taylor, in the 1880s, said that we can come to no other conclusion other than that Quetzalcoatl and Jesus are the same being. Because both were feathered serpents. But the history of the former has been handed down to us through an impure source, which has disfigured and perverted the original incidents and teachings of the Savior's life and ministry. D.H. Lawrence, he was a great enthusiast for all this kind of business. So I know you're down on green. Are you also down on Lawrence? Yes, down on Lawrence too. I had to do the rainbow for an A-level. Didn't like it. <laughs> Gibberish. I have to be honest with you. I'm not a massive D.H. Lawrence person. Either. I just think there's so much. It's so overwritten. So, so self-indulgent. And there's just excessive uses of the word loins. Yes. Which he uses multiple times a page. Second. <laughs> All that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's just too much, isn't it? Anyway, this has nothing to do with Dare the Dead. But in, he went to Mexico. He wrote his book, The Plumed Serpent. And he has this sort of weird, it's this weird fantasy in which... A weird fantasy in D.H. Lawrence? Yes. Surely in, not. In which the Catholic Church... It's kind of a preview of the Cristero War, actually, in which the Catholic Church is outlawed in Mexico and it's replaced by the worship of Quetzalcoatl, which completely takes over. This is his sort of... For a man who basically spent the first years of his life hanging around pubs in mining villages in <laughs> Nottinghamshire or whatever, um, this was all a bit much. Anyway, listen. The Cardenas period, so Lazaro Cardenas, the president, it's under him that they really, really push the Day of the Dead. And in fact, that woman I mentioned earlier from the Institute of Anthropology in Mexico City, Elsa Malbido, she says the altars in people's homes, all that stuff that you would think is a, you know, a survival of an ancient past. All this stuff is basically invented in the 1930s. So Dominic, that's really interesting because it's around the same time that the theories that Christian festivals are pagan festivals in reality start to become popular. Ah, right. Yeah. And it reflects an assumption that this is how states can operate. Yeah. It is clearly an entirely 20th century one. In an age when the state is powerful. Yes. So the idea that, you know, a Christianized Roman empire would bother Christianizing, I don't know, Saturnalia or whatever. Yeah. That they would, they would have the power and the kind of conceptual framework to do that. Yeah. And it probably, exactly so that is, that is, they're probably drawing on, you know, the example of what's going on in Mexico. And well, but I'm sure people, the 1920s and 30s is an age when people are amounting spectacular kind of public rituals, aren't they? I mean, yeah. you just think about Hitler and his rallies. People are mounting these rituals that are deliberate kind of blends of modern and ancient. And it's easy to kind of then project that back and think that, that people have always been doing this. 
So because the fact that it is in the 1930s and it's at an age of anti-Catholicism, that explains, I think, why you get the playing up of so many of the non-Catholic, non-obviously Catholic elements, the playing up of the skulls, the playing up of all this, the indigenous nature of it. But obviously it, it's still fundamentally, I mean, the dates and the concern with the afterlife. Yeah. It's entirely Christian. Yeah, it is. I think that's fair to say. I think, that's, I think that is fair to say. I think basically what you would say if you were stepping right back from it is you would say it's a medieval Spanish Christian Dress, dressed up in feathers. That's been dressed up in 20th yes. century, in a 20th century Green version. feathers. The green feathers of Quetzalcoatl. Exactly. Yeah. But let's go back, end by going right back to where we started, which was the um, James Bond. So in the film Spectre, Bond is dressed in this fantastic outfit. He has a top hat. He has the skull. And he's got his sort of girlfriend who she's also incredibly beautiful, but and she has she? this sort wow. of, it would amaze you to hear that, Tom. Uh, <laughs> she has this sort of skull mask and everybody has this sort of skull mask. And that, now that costume, that is 19th century. Because actually you will see that, that costume. First of all, you will see it in Diego Rivera's, one of, in one of his murals that you were talking about. So a mural called The Dream of a Sunday Afternoon at Alameda Central Park. It's a, it's a sort of satire of the world before the Mexican Revolution. So rich people are kind of promenading in the park, but in the, on the one side, indigenous families are being beaten by the police. And on another side, the victims of the Inquisition are being burned alive. And this sort of idea that, you know, the, the bourgeoisie and their top hats and stuff and their canes and all that sort of thing, they're having a fine old time, but actually there's death in their souls. Mm-hmm. That's key part of uh, Rivera's mural, but he actually got that idea. Every, everything has a, everything you know. There's layers upon layers. He got that idea from a 19th century cartoon, so by a guy called Jose Guadalupe Posada, who was writing in the mid 19th century, who filled his car. He was critical of the 19th century regime of the dictator of the time, Porfirio Diaz. And he filled his stuff with skulls and skeletons. And his most famous character was called La Calabera Garbanthera, who, which was a upper class woman in a very flowery kind of French style hat. The Frenchness is obviously bad. Yes, for, for reasons to do with the last emperor of Mexico that we did that wonderful episode on. French, for French poor behavior in Mexico in the 19th century. She's called, now this woman today, she's called, she's known in Mexico as Katrina. She, you know, she's incredibly elegant and all this, but her face is a skull. Mm. And, um, you know, historians now say, well, this cartoonist, he was obviously influenced by the idea of the dance of death, you know, the dance of the dead yeah. from the sort of medieval and Renaissance dance paintings. Macabre. Interestingly, he's also mocking the 19th century Mexican fashion at the time, which was for posh women to deny their Mexicanness, to make themselves look European and to whiten their faces. So they look like skulls. So they look like skulls. So it's, so it's, uh, the day of the dead is ultimately uh, an anti-French. <laughs> well, yeah. Like <laughs> <Who> all <knew>? good. <laughs> like all good traditions. So in other words, that opening scene inspector, James Bond is dressed as ultimately a 19th century political cartoon of an aristocratic Mexican woman. <laughs> Love it. Um, people, the people inspector who are out there in the, um, in the streets, they are enjoying a procession that doesn't exist in reality and never had existed. And insofar as there are authentic elements in that scene, they're not indigenous. They're actually medieval Christian and they acquired their current flavor from the kind of anti-clericalism of the late 19th and early 20th century. But there's a huge sort of twist to all this. 
So most people, when they saw that film, actually Spectre was not a great James Bond film, but a lot of people said the best thing about it was that opening scene, um, the pre-credit sequence with uh, Bond in Mexico. And because of the interest in it, the Mexican government decided <laughs> that they would do that parade after all. So the year after it, um, after it came out, they launched the first Dia de Muertos parade in the center of Mexico City, which was attended by a quarter of a million people. And they have been doing Day of the Dead parades in Mexico City ever since. That is so genius. And in a thousand years' time, when scholars are trying to tease out the origins of (laughs) this ancient... This ancient Aztec procession through the heart of Mexico City. By an Aztec novelist called Ian Fleming. (laughs) (laughs) The mystery, yes, it will take so much effort to tease out the truth. Dominic, that was brilliant. Muchas gracias. That's that's, uh, (laughs) nada, Tom. You're very welcome. So we've got all kinds of treats coming up on The Rest is History. The equivalent, the podcasting equivalent of sugar skulls and sweet breads, haven't we, Tom? (laughs) We invent all our own traditions on this show. Uh, and we will um, look forward to seeing you next time. Bye-bye. Hasta luego. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Hi, Rest is History fans. If you want more Tom Holland in your life, and frankly, why wouldn't you? I have some good news for you. I'm Emily Dean, and I'm thrilled to say that this week, Tom is a guest on my podcast, Walking the Dog, where you get to hear well-known faces at their most relaxed, because I talk to them over a leisurely outdoor stroll with my dog, Raymond. And you can join us this week for a very special two-part in-depth chat with Tom Holland. And yes, I'm afraid I did ask him this question. Tom, how often do you think about the Roman Empire? I think about it a huge amount. In fact, there are days where I barely stop thinking about it. My brain is occupied by the Romans. It's like Gaul. If you want to hear more of my chat with Tom, give Walking the Dog a listen this week. And while you're there, you can take your pick from episodes starring the likes of Ricky Gervais, Jack Whitehall and Jimmy Carr. What's that, Raymond? Yes, The Rest is History did do an episode all about the greatest dogs in history. No, you weren't in it. Most spoilt dog in history, maybe.